This morning we're moving from the public square of Jerusalem to the private setting of the upper room. As the shadow of the cross grew larger, Jesus became laser-focused on equipping and preparing his disciples for his departure. Chapters 13 through 17 are often called the Upper Room Discourse. Over these five chapters, Jesus gave final instructions to them, promised the Holy Spirit would come to help them, and, and prayed for them. And so as we pick up in, at the start of chapter 13, we find Jesus and his disciples huddled together in a, in a borrowed loft preparing for the feast of the Passover. They're celebrating this annual holy day together, and despite many warnings from Jesus, the twelve were still completely unaware of the gravity of the approaching hour. They certainly didn't know that they were about to share their final meal with their rabbi, and they certainly couldn't have predicted how their rabbi would serve them during this meal, because they certainly didn't expect that. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Incarnate Word, the King of the Jews, would shamelessly and unapologetically serve them by washing their dirty feet. But that's exactly what he did. And everything that he would go on to teach them in their final hours together would flow directly out of this stunning sacrificial act. But before we take a look at this, this well-known event in the final week of Christ's life, we should circle back to a basic biblical principle, basic Bible study principle. We often say that when we read Scripture, we should always follow a simple formula. We should always ask ourselves two questions. The first question, what does it say about God? What is the verse, the chapter of the book we're reading, what does it say about God? And then the second question, what does it say about us? So we discover the truth about God first, and then we determine the application for us second. We marvel at the, the majesty, the beauty, the sufficiency of God first. Then we understand the, the principles, the commands, and the warnings for us second. So we must see both sides of the equation, but in their proper order. And when we consider What's going on here in the upper room in chapter 13, we should be overwhelmed by the theological significance and soundly rebuked by the practical implications. So we should see both sides of this, but we can't get the cart before the horse. We can't skip ahead to application without properly considering the depths of truth. Now, this is my weekly struggle in sermon preparation. When I start looking at a passage early in the week, my mind immediately starts constructing an outline. I start asking myself, can this be divided into sections? What are the main points? What are the primary questions? What illustrations will bring this into our current context? What's the introduction? What's the conclusion? What's the key application? But here's the problem with that strategy. I'm not the center of the story. You're not the center of the story. The Bible is not about us. The Bible is about God. And so I'm constantly pumping the brakes throughout the week because I know when I rush to application, I have a tendency to belittle truth a little bit. When I become exceedingly concerned with pinpointing four sermon points, all starting with the same letter of the alphabet, I can become insufficiently concerned with unraveling the glory of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's 
crucial for us to keep things in the appropriate order, where we fully understand the truth about God first, and then we discover the application for us. And this is especially important when dealing with familiar passages like John 13, verses 1 through 17. Because when we encounter a familiar passage, we can naturally gravitate towards a familiar solution. We can read these verses and think, okay, Christ washed the disciples' feet, and this is the the definition of servant leadership. This is the highest king in heaven and on earth, completing the chore of the lowest servant. You know, he says in verse 15 that I've given you an example and you should do to others what I've done for you. So there's the application. There's the lesson. There's the caption for the Monday morning Instagram post. Christ is our example. As he loved the disciples, we should love one another. As he served the disciples, we should serve one another. What an important reminder. What a vital truth for us. What's for lunch? And we could just sprint there and and not take the time to see everything that's going on here. Now, obviously, those conclusions are accurate. You know, we should be challenged to follow the example uh, of Christ. However, before we consider the practical application, we should consider the theological significance. Before we consider what John 13, 1 through 17 says about us, we should consider what it says about Christ. Before we consider how we should respond to Christ, we should consider what we receive from Christ. And so here's the outline. We'll divide this passage into two sections. In verses 1 through 11, we'll see three characteristics of Christ. This is what we receive from Christ. And then in verses 12 through 17, we'll see one command for us. This is how we respond to Christ. So let's start reading in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... When the devil had already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. But not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. So as I said, verses 1 through 11, we see what we receive from Christ. First, we receive Christ's endless love. Now at the end of of chapter 11, the Sanhedrin made formal plans to execute Christ. And so as we move deeper into the Gospel of John, 
the cross is coming into plain view. I mean, it's, it's around the corner. It's on the next exit. You know, John mentioned Christ's hour several times, but now we're really zeroing in on it. In verse 1, he provides two different timestamps for us. He says it was the Feast of Passover, and he says it was Christ's hour to depart out of this world to the Father. And so both these messages convey the same message to us, that Jesus' hour was here, that his earthly ministry was over, that his suffering was imminent. At this point, Christ could see the widespread opposition and unbelief. He knew the Pharisees were rallying crowds against him, and he had supernatural insight about the coming events. So he is fully aware in this moment that the clock is ticking. He is fully aware in this moment that time was running out. And so here's a, here's a quick rhetorical question for you. Don't, don't shout out your answer. If you knew your days were numbered, what would you do? If an angel of the Lord came into your bedroom tonight and told you you were going to die on Thursday, how would you spend your final days on earth? Would you wrestle with grief and sadness? Would you lament over unchecked boxes of your past and miss milestones of your future? Or would you gather friends together, gather family together, fulfill a bucket list item or two, take a long overdue trip, indulge in delicious food and drink? Would you say, my, my hour is coming, woe is me, I could have done so much more with my life, now I'll never have a chance? Or would you say, my hour is coming, I'm going to maximize my final time, and I will make the most of every moment, and I will do everything that I always wanted to do? Now, whichever way you, you, you go, whether you go glass half full, glass half empty, either way, if your hour was coming, you would set your schedule based on your wants, your desires, and your needs. And by the way, when, when time's running out, no one blames you for putting yourself first, right? If, if you are living out your last few days on earth, you're completely justified to go put your toes in the water, to try out for American Idol, to visit the Grand Canyon, or to consume obscene amounts of calories, I can tell you that my bucket list would have a lot to do with food. But this wasn't Christ's focus. Christ had a different focus. Let's, let's break down verse 1. It says the Passover has arrived. The hour has come. Okay, So we know that, that Jesus will die by the end of this week. Therefore, okay, knowing all that, Jesus showcased his love for his disciples. Jesus was about to depart to the Father and his actions were motivated by love. The end of verse 1 says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We understand that, that Christ loves the whole world. The most famous verse in the Gospel of John and maybe the most famous verse in the entire Bible is John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But Christ's love for his own surpasses his love for the world. 
The followers of Christ receive special grace. The world gets common grace. Okay, so think about think about the creation account. Think back to Genesis 1 and 2. In those two chapters, God provided several gifts for mankind. He created the heavens and the earth for us. I would say that's a gift. He established marriage for us. He gave dominion, generated work for us. He presented food and drink to us. But all of these heavenly gifts can be enjoyed by all of humanity. Every person can enjoy the beauty of nature. Watch the ocean roll in. Watch the sunset. Every person can enjoy a satisfying marriage. There are atheists who are happily married and have been for decades. Every person can enjoy a fulfilling career. Every person can enjoy a center-cut filet cooked medium with a loaded baked potato and a piece of key lime pie on the side. Do you, do you see earlier I was talking about how my bucket list would involve food? I guess you're learning some things about me right now. But here's the point. Both believers and non-believers can enjoy God's common grace. Matthew 5.45 says, For God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so God loves the entire world with common grace, but God loves his children with special grace. And so when John says that Jesus loved them to the end, he's not just talking about the, the duration of Christ's love. He's talking about the degree of Christ's love. He loved them fully completely, unconditionally. He went to the cross in obedience to his Father's will and for his Father's glory, but he also went to the cross because of a perfect, sacrificial, and eternal love for his own. In our broken world, we can barely comprehend love without an expiration date. Every marriage doesn't go the distance. Every parent-child relationship isn't healthy. Every best friend forever doesn't last forever. And so when you consider the depths of, of Christ's love, you may have concerns. You may have questions. In weak moments, you may ask, Jesus, do you still love me? Jesus, are you still there? Jesus, do you still care? Jesus, are you still invested in, in what happens to me? And if that's you, I can assure you that Jesus would answer your question with a question. He would say, do I still love you? Well, is it the end yet? Is it the end yet? Well, the answer, of course, is no. Then yes, I still love love you because Christ loves his own to the end. Second, we receive Christ's humble servants. So as we move to verses 2 through 5, notice once again you'll see this, this striking contrast between what Jesus knew and what Jesus did. We already saw it in verse 1. He knew his hour had come. He knew he was about to die and he spent his time loving his disciples. He spent his time putting others First, now we see it again in 2 through 5. 
that Jesus knows his place as the highest king, his rightful place as the supreme being in the universe, and he served his disciples as the lowest servant. Look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. So for, for 12 chapters, the Apostle John, in excruciating detail, has, has given us a, a clear picture of the identity of Christ. That he's the word who became flesh, the lamb of God who would take the sins away from the world, the miracle worker who healed the sick and raised the dead, the king of the Jews who had become the king of the nations, the only begotten son who came from the father, reveals the father and is equal to the father. And so in, in, in leading up to our passage, these are all the things that John has said about Jesus. These are all the things that we should understand about Jesus. And then we get to chapter 13, and he's the one who washed feet. And in their context, this is unbelievable because, you know, servants wash their master's feet, and children wash their parents' feet, and wives wash their husband's feet, but a person in authority would never wash the feet of a person under him. Yet here's Jesus with all the authority in heaven and on earth washing their feet. All 12 of them. Did you catch that that Judas is still in the room? Did you see that that Jesus washed Judas' feet too? In verse 2, we see that Judas had already aligned his heart with Satan. In verse 11, we see that, that Jesus knew he was about to betray him. And this should be a a startling picture for us that we should serve others without a single consideration for the return on our investment. That we should serve others without restrictions. We should serve others without reservations. We should serve others without any hope that they may one day return the favor. Judas was about to betray Christ, yet Christ washed his feet. I'll concede that it's nearly impossible to provide greater context this moment with illustration, but I'm going to try my best. When I was working in student ministry, I served alongside this incredible couple who who poured into our middle school students. They were empty nesters, and they, they willingly and joyfully leveraged their time, energy, and resources into discipling the next generation. And they were wonderful partners in the gospel. But on one occasion, they had a crazy idea. On one occasion, they were on a completely different page than me. In the summer of 2016, on the final night of our our middle school summer camp, they had special plans for the end of the worship service. We had had these these three nights of worship, and this is our final one. And they they wanted to... Wash the middle school students' feet as a, a powerful visual for, for serving one another. Just want to take this, this, uh, 
this wooden understanding of what Christ is teaching here and just wash their feet, just have this beautiful picture of service. Now, I was extremely touched by sentiment, but I was deeply concerned with the premise because I was bunking with 10 eighth grade boys and I could attest that the Axe body spray they were using could only overpower their body odor for so long. Now on the second night, one of our adult volunteers drove 40 miles round trip to the closest Walmart to purchase a box fan. And this fan served two purposes. It cooled us off and it pushed all unwanted smells out the door into the hallway. So I had plenty of reservations about washing these middle school students' feet. I mean, these were the eighth graders, right? They were the most hygienic. So I had reservations, but I signed off on it, and I'll never forget this night. So I was the first one down there washing a few students' feet, just feeling how humbling that experience was. And then I watched our senior pastor who was on the trip washing eighth graders' feet. I watched a mother wash her son's feet. I watched a college student wash your sister's feet. And it was this unforgettable moment, this powerful moment, this beautiful moment, but it pales in comparison to the scene in John 13. Listen to H.P. Charles Jr.'s reflection on this moment. He says, Jesus was perfectly aware of his sovereign authority, divine origin, and eternal destiny Yet his divine majesty did not prevent him from washing his disciples' feet. His standing as the highest king didn't prevent him from becoming the lowest servant. And Christ's humility in the upper room is staggering. And we know he's just getting started because as Paul explains in, in Philippians 2, he would take himself even lower as though he was in form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So second, we receive Christ's humble service Third, we receive Christ's cleansing power. So in verses 6 through 10, we see Peter is clearly not okay with the idea of his master becoming his servant. Now, Peter could have been, you know, the voice in the room. Sometimes one disciple speaks up and we assume that he's speaking up on behalf of everyone else. But, but Peter was clearly disturbed troubled and offended by this premise. He asks in verse 6, Lord, do you wash my feet? I mean, in other words, what are you doing? What are you thinking? And throughout the Gospels, the Apostle Peter experienced these incredible highs and devastating lows. And the best picture of his up and down journey may be in Matthew 16. You know, about the middle of that chapter, Jesus asks, who do you think I am? And 
Peter was the first disciple to put everything together, the first disciple to have a clear view of the identity of Jesus. And so he replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commended him. He said, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then a few verses later, in the same chapter, after Jesus told his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer, he must die, he must rise again on the third day, Peter pulls him aside to try to talk some sense into him. He, he rebuked him, which is never a good strategy, never a good move. He said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Christ fired back, get behind me, Satan. And so in a span of just a few verses, five or six verses, Peter goes from blessed are you to get behind me, Satan. From the highest mountain to the lowest valley. And so here in verse 6, Peter surely thought he was on the right track. Jesus starts washing everyone's feet, and, and Peter's probably thinking to himself, okay, this is a test. This is a test. Jesus loves speaking in parables, so there's no way that he's he's... He's really doing this. He's putting this ridiculous premise in front of us that, that he, or our master, would wash our feet. He's putting this ridiculous premise in front of us just to see how we'll react. He wants to get a rise out of us. Well, I'm not taking the bait. I'm not falling for it. Now I'm going to get the right answer. I'm going to score a few brownie points. So he speaks up and he says, Excuse me, Jesus, why would you ever wash my feet? You're the master, I'm the servant. You don't serve me, I serve you. And it was the wrong answer. Now to be fair, he wasn't completely wrong. He gets partial credit. In one sense, Christ is our master and we're all bond servants. If you skip ahead to verse 13, you see that you know Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord and you're right. So Jesus wasn't completely blowing social protocol. He wasn't completely denying the authority granted to him, but he was adding another layer to it. You know, in one sense, he's our master, but in another sense, he's our, our servant. And that sounds incredibly strange to say, but look at Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And we can't look at the cross of Calvary any other way than as an incredible act of service. Because on the cross, Christ displayed his supreme glorification by stooping to serve in supreme act of humiliation. And so Peter doesn't understand this yet. He doesn't see the duality of Christ yet. He, doesn't, he can't comprehend this idea of a servant king yet. He'll eventually see the light, but for right now he's asking, what are you doing, Jesus? And so in verse 7, Jesus answered, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you'll understand. Doesn't this exchange sound eerily familiar to us? Haven't we had similar conversations with God? Haven't we prayed before, Lord, what are you thinking? 
Lord, why did I lose my job? Lord, why did I receive this diagnosis? Lord, why am I dealing with this person? Lord, why are you allowing my life to fall apart? Lord, what are you doing? I can tell you that, that in these moments, 99 times out of 100, it would be to your benefit to keep John 13, 7 handy. Jesus, what are you doing? Well, right now, you wouldn't understand, but one day, you will understand. So in the interim, you should trust me. That's what we see in verse 7. Peter questioned Jesus. Jesus answered Peter. Peter didn't understand what Jesus was doing, and Jesus called Peter to submit to him anyway, to trust him anyway. And spoiler alert, Peter didn't do that. Verse 8, he exclaimed, You shall never wash my feet. In the original language, Peter uses a double negative. He said, Never, he meant never, ever. He's basically saying, You'll wash my feet over my dead body. Jesus. And Jesus calmly responded, if I don't wash you, you'll have no share with me. And so we see that the towel and the basin are a metaphor for the cross. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, by grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift from God. Not a result of works that no one may boast. So salvation is based upon what Christ does for you, not what you do for Christ. So Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you'll have no share with me. And then we get this, this really funny and wonderful response from Peter. Says, if that's the case, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. See, Peter didn't fully understand. Peter didn't fully agree with what Jesus was doing. But Peter wanted to be with Jesus. Peter wanted to be close with Jesus. Wherever Jesus was going, that's where Peter wanted to go. And so he ordered the full service cleaning. He says, if being washed is how I stay close to you, then wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my back, wash my head, wash my whole body. I don't know what's going on, but I'm all in. Clean all of me. And then in verse 10, Christ gave further explanation. It says, Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. So let's say next week when my family's on vacation that Lacey and I slip away for a romantic date somewhere in St. Augustine. That we leave the, the kids with my parents, we take showers, we get dressed up, and we find a restaurant with a nice view. And after our meal, we kick off our shoes and we take a sunset walk on the beach. Now, when we return to the rental property, how are we going to get the sand off our feet? Are we going to take a shower to wash our full bodies? Are we going to use a spigot or, or stick our legs in the tub to wash the sand off our feet? And more than likely, we'll just rinse off. 
And this is the point that, that Jesus is making. He's, he's showing this relationship between justification and sanctification. Now at conversion, we are, are sanctified. God cleanses us of all unrighteousness, but as we walk through the world, we pick up its dirt. And when our feet become dirty, Jesus says we don't need another bath. We don't need another conversion. Instead, we wash our feet. We confess and repent of our sin. You know, in this life, we may continue washing and rewashing our feet to remove the grit and grime of this world, but we can rest assured that while we're doing that, while we're walking that process of sanctification, while we are being molded and shaped and crafted into the image of Christ, our salvation is secure in Him. Because on the cross, He cleaned us from head to toe. And so there's still a process of sanctification. But praise the Lord, Christ took care of the justification. So we get to verse 12. After Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he explained the implication of the washing. It says, when he had washed their feet, put on his outer garments, put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right, for so I am. If then I'm your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, then you ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a master greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So in the first 11 verses, we see what we receive from Christ. And then in these verses, we see how we should respond to Christ. There's only one point here. The way that we respond to Christ is we follow his example. Verse 15 clearly states, For I've given you an example that you should do just as I've done to you. So if Jesus washed feet, you can pray for the sick. If Jesus washed feet, you can greet guests. If Jesus washed feet, you can take a meal to your neighbor. If Jesus washed feet, you can care for children in the nursery. If Jesus washed feet, you can visit shut-ins. If Jesus washed feet, you can give to Options Now and the food pantry and Annie Armstrong and Lottie Moon. If Jesus washed feet, you can share the gospel in Lowndes County. If Jesus washed feet, you can serve him in a multitude of ways. A few years ago, I was meeting with a young man who I was discipling and I asked him, in one of our sessions, what is the gospel? And he said, the way I see it, Jesus is like my big brother. I look up to him. I want to be like him. And I follow his example. 
This is why we spent the majority of our time together covering what we receive from Christ rather than how we respond to Christ. Because we can easily fall into the trap of basing our Christian journey on the foundation of behavior modification and white-knuckle discipline, where we access our own power for pursuing God's standard, where we place ourselves at the center of God's glory, where we allow our flesh to shift our focus to what we can do instead of what Christ has already done. But church, when we are grounded in the glory of Jesus Christ, we will mirror the service of Jesus Christ. When we see his endless love, when we experience his humble service, when we feel his cleansing power, we will follow his example. This week, I heard a story about a church member seeking clarification from his pastor on this text. He said, Pastor, if I'm understanding John 13 correctly, all of life is basin theology. Either I can be like Jesus and use a basin to serve others, or I can be like Pilate and take a basin to wash my hands of Jesus. See, this man understood the primary point of our passage. Being, fo being a follower of Jesus Christ means following his example and serving others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this time to gather together. Lord, it's, it's a little difficult to talk about service right now in the current context that we're living in with so many things just unsettled and so many things uncertain and so many possibilities very very murky it's hard for us to plan it's hard for us to get into our normal routines and it's hard for us to you know slide into the places that we normally serve we're not able to meet in, in the church in the ways we normally meet and a lot of ways that we might serve things we might do just aren't happening right so, Father, help us to be creative in this time. Help, help show us some ways that we can make Christ known in this community. Help us discover some outside-the-box ways that we can take the gospel to Lowndes County. Because, Father, when we consider what we have received from Christ we have no choice but to respond to Christ in humble service of our own. So Father, show us what that looks like during this uncertain time. So Father, we thank you for that challenge and we thank you for your son. We thank you for his love for us. We thank you for his service for us, and we thank you for his, his, his power to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.